0: Log
1: Talk Radio. Africa Africa. Africa Africa. is the center of the world. Latitude zero, longitude zero. Planned by the creator. Cisanthropus was the first man found on the earth. That earth was the motherland...
2: to come to your homes this evening, where we can speak truth to power and to provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. That's right. You can use it as a tool for liberation to help liberate your people and help liberate humanity from all of the various forms of oppression. We welcome you today on the 23rd of February, 2020, to Africa on the Move. Our lineup for tonight will include what's going on in your world and our theme, Not Free, What's Happening to Us. That's our theme for tonight, and we'd like for you to join in and participate by feeling free to call in at three two three six seven nine zero eight four one, And we will welcome you. Like always, when you listen to Africa on the Move, uh this institutions for the masses of African people as part of the Pan African movement. And we always get our party started by introducing our political panelists and analysts for today's program. And for today's program we will start off first and we'd like to welcome our brother Haki to Africa on the Moon. Welcome Brother Haki.
3: Brother Africa, thanks for helping me. My name is Haki Kamati Mishoki. You know, I was thinking. uh, You know, I read some articles the other day, and they're talking about uh, reintroduction to you know faulty science to justify the exploitation of people. Now, when we talk about this this exploitation, increasingly they're talking about younger and younger people, and specifically they're talking about younger and younger you know African children. So it got me to thinking. You know, when I you know back in you know back in the the founding of of the United States, one of the things that's very, very interesting is that. Crime was notably, uh, supposedly uh, demonstrated by your physical characteristics. In other words, the shape of your head determined whether or not you was a criminal or not. Believe it or not, that philosophy or that science uh, guided the uh, understanding of criminality for a long, long time in North America. So here in the 21st century, we're back, we're back at that. So I wrote this, and I just, uh, you know, uh, I want people to appreciate the points that I make. In any event. Uh, Convies of Rice, the former Secretary of State uh, under George Bush Jr., talked about constructive chaos. This theory holds, by destroying all forms of human organization, any form of resistance would be prevented, and the uh, exploitation of the masses, uh, poor, be poor people, ethnic groups, or the powerless, would be assured. Even though this concept applies to international geopolitics, the same construct can and is applied to national politics. Recently, the long-discredited science of equating brain size the criminality has risen. In a recent report published by the University College of London, it looked at uh, 672 people from New Zealand to access to access brain size and criminality. The report included of the 672 participants, 151 demonstrated antisocial behavior. Now, obviously, antisocial uh, factors contribute to <clears throat> obviously antisocial. Many antisocial factors contribute to antisocial behavior. Antisocial, in this case, being defined as defining aggressive, or hostile behavior. Social forces like lack of food, instability, and abuse can also contribute to social, antisocial behavior. Now, this definition of antisocial behavior becomes even more problematic when these characteristics are applied to younger and younger children. A decade ago, applying such a, lab, a labor on four- to five-year-olds would have been unimaginable. So why the change today? Why are we willing to accuse children of being sociopaths when their personalities haven't even been developed? Now, much of the political change evolves around competition. Now, people have to understand that as capitalism deconstructs, as it continues to decline, the competition for resources creates scarcity. In order to better understand this whole concept of scarcity, we must understand how finance exceeds economics under capitalist structure. As a result of financial domination, the focus is on benefiting those who control or possess capital. Access to capital or profits. With the presumption finance has no consideration whatsoever with the function of economics. In other words, finance motivation does not consider the good of the economy. Economics, on the other hand, takes into consideration the well being of the citizenry. Economics takes into consideration the flow of money through the system is the only way to ensure government beats obligation to its people. Finance has no such obligations. As such, it is more profitable to ensure scarcity of resources because scarcity ensures higher prices and or higher returns on investments. Now, given this backdrop, if capitalism can systematically eliminate African or poor children from competing by labeling them antisocial, does this not increase the inevitability of less money for education, or does it inevitably lead to more imprisonment? Now, if so, what should the response of the African community be? So it seems to me that institutions are extremely important in terms of addressing the particular question. One of the things you were very clear on, in America, for every 100,000 people, there are 750 people who are incarcerated. So we're talking about over 2.3 million people, 40% are African people who are locked up in prisons. Now, Africans only constitute 13% of the population. So clearly, given the precursors of the system, uh, it calls for more incarceration of African people. So the question is, what are we going to do uh, as African people strategically in terms of countering this attempt by the system to destroy our children at a very early level? So the only thing on us to create uh, institutions to safeguard the the, the 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 mindset of safeguard the um, the, the, uh, potential problems that our young people might confront in society. So I encourage people to get about the business of actually, you know, and getting about building those institutions are so important in terms of, you know, future aspirations for our people.
2: Thank you, Brother Haki. Next we'd like to welcome Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the move.
4: Revolutionary greetings, Brother Africa, and revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism.
5: Thank you, Brother Andy. Father, Brother Anthony. We will go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. And greetings to the panelists. Greetings to everyone within the panel of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show.
2: Thank you, Brother Moses. And Father, Brother Moses, we are bringing Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, welcome to Africa on the Move.
6: Peace, everybody. This is Brother Jabari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another insightful pan- panel. Appreciate the opportunity and privilege to take part. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Jabari. And we now bringing in our brother, Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, welcome to Africa on the move.
7: Welcome, Brother African. Welcome. Revolutionary greetings. Everybody out there that's listening and revolutionary greetings to my fellow um, panelists. Thank you so much for having me here tonight. My name is Brother Maurice. I am a member of the Pan-African Revolutionary Socialist Party. Thank you. All right,
2: panelists. You know how we rolled on this particular program. Let's um, deal with the first segment of our program on what's going on in your world and the community, Brother Aki.
3: Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, uh, African Awareness Association will be taking a trip to Cuba. This trip takes place July 31st July 24th to July 31st, and we encourage people to go to Cuba and see for themselves firsthand the marvelous work Cuba's doing in terms of this relationship between its people and institutions in Cuba. And understanding this, this, this relationship between people and institutions is very, very key. And one of the real problems that we have in, in the community is the question is that we don't have any real institutions that really empower us. And so until we have institutions that empower we continue to be victims of strategy of being waged by those positions of power who have, who don't have our interests at heart. So we need institutions in terms of combating a lot of these systematic ills that inflict our community. Now, just in order to learn more about this trip, we encourage you to give us a call at area code 804-549-7492, area code, or area code 202-714-9435, or email us at african American Association, all one word, number two, at Gmail, again, we encourage people to see for themselves firsthand what Cuba' is all about, forget about what other people say, go for, go for yourself, Get, talk to the Cuban people, uh, engage engage with them some kind of discussion in terms of your perception of you know Cuba, and, and listen to what they have to say. Uh, I think you find it very, very enlightening, so we encourage people to definitely to go because I think it's so key in terms of understanding you know the role of institutions in society. A oh, second thing, brother Africa. Um, the question in terms of you know we talk a lot about at least we intimate a lot about the question around fascism, and I think that you know we we, we to best of my ability you know I try to explain what fascism is, and sometimes you know we you know maybe we don't explain it to the to the satisfaction of a lot of people, so let me try something from a different perspective. Something I I read an article I wrote that sort of highlights you know the the, the intimacies in terms of what fasc, what fascism is all about. Maybe people get it from a different perspective. Now, the notion that the U.S. government laws and policies are predicated on the common good is embodied in the Constitution. What happened to the common good of institutions, values, pledge, and instead implement laws and policies in opposition to human rights enshrined in the Constitution? One such case among many that highlights systematic abuse of the citizenry and flagrant disregard for the Constitution is Denzinga D- 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 versus Chevron. Uh, Stephen Danzinga, an attorney. Over 10 years has been battling Chevron In court over the ecological damage Done by oil spills and toxic waste dumps Committed in the Amazon Against the Ecuadorian people Now the Ecuadorian court found Chevron Guilty and fined Chevron $18 billion Before reducing that fine To $9.5 billion Now Chevron was refused to honor the judgment And instead transferred all his money Out of Ecuador Now to ensure no payment uh, if this, Now if this Was not criminal enough Chevron initiated charges against the attorney, against the attorney and his team. Chevron forwarded a petition charging Mr. Denzinger with corruption and judicial fraud. The judge who presided over the case, Louis Kaplan, since 2011 transferred the case to judge affiliated with Chevron, at least as alleged. This judge, Loretta Preska, uh, <clears throat> uh, unconvinced the cards were not stacked high enough. Judge Prescott allowed the fabricated testimony of Judge Alberto Guerrero of Ecuador to testify he was bribed by the attorney Dan Zinger. This testimony was allowed even after it was disclosed Chevron gave uh, this particular lawyer out of Ecuador hundreds of thousands of dollars and resettled him and his family to the U.S. in addition to weekly stipends. Danzinger was hit with a civil suit alleging $60 billion in damages. Currently, he is confined to home, wears an anchor bracelet, and is disbarred. So working for him is not an option. Now, theoretically, government exists as counterbalance to remedy systemic abuse. However, in the 20th century, abuse have escalated. For example, John Gotti, I don't think most people know who John Gotti was. He was the, um, the monster uh, out of Brooklyn, New York. In any event, he was not allowed to have his lawyer, Bruce Cutler, because Bruce Cutler was successful in defending him against previous cases against government lawyers. Now, in the 21st century, the violation of civil and human rights are quickly vanishing. A couple of examples recently. A young woman was admonished by Amazon for stating her employer, Amazon, could do more to tackle climate change. The statement was made in her community as a private citizen. From now on, this industrial woman needs written authorization to utter the word Amazon, otherwise, otherwise she's fired. Secondly, um, auto recalls are no longer honored by many dealerships. Auto dealerships now, auto dealerships would set up phony codes which do not correspond with the specific problem laid out in the recalls. Now, this is achieved by not providing a specific code on recall notice, assuming you get one, or must recall information. It's a excuse me, recall information is obtained online, which makes it easier to deny the recalls legitimacy. It appears that the right to become economically free from economic exploitation. Uh, it's less important than the right for businesses to make profit. So, if that's the situation, if it's all about the money, then the question has to arise then what is the value in terms of human life? What is the value of human life in a society which says that money is the only thing that matters? So, when we talk about fascism, we talk about these systematic injustices. Normally, we depend on the government as a counterbalance to prevent you know, these kind of abuses from taking place. So, when we have a problem, say, with these oil dealerships, we could go to the government and we have better business for example, to intercede on our behalf to resolve the, the problem. But what happens is that fascism does a very good job in terms of eliminating government so you don't have anybody on your side, so it's simply the citizenry up against corporations. And of course, we know corporations, well, it's a huge amount of power, and so therefore they're in a position to determine, you know, you know just, you just to what extent rights. And as far as they're concerned, you have no rights because the only thing for them that is a right is their right to make profit. So clearly This is how fascism works. I hope this is a clear example in terms of, you know, how anonymous, you know, fascism is and why it's an implicit threat, you know, to all human beings on this planet. All right.
2: Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, Thanks for going to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community?
4: Okay. Um, a few things. Um, First of all, uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, and the National Council of Arab Americans are organizing African Liberation Day and Napa Palestine Day 2020 under the theme, Not Yet Uhuru, Not Yet Freedom, Not Yet Liberation, in combat with women's oppression, neocolonialism, Zionism, and settler colonialism worldwide. Uh, This event will take place at Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C., across the street from the White House, uh, commencing at 10 a.m. and concluding at 6 p.m. in Washington, D.C. For more information on how to participate or help us in our efforts, please visit our website at wwwa a gcorg Thank you, Brother
2: Also, Evie.
4: yeah, go ahead. <laughs> You're good, Brother Evie. You still got your mic. Okay, yeah. In addition, um, uh, let's see, this Friday, February 21st, was the 55th anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination. And to this day, uh there's st- uh there's still not uh is still not concluded who was who was responsible for uh for his assassination. And uh you know and uh you know and uh let's see and and for the sake of his family and the masses of african people to whom he contributed so much uh, you know, uh we we deserve to know the truth about what happened on that, you know, day.
2: Okay. Thank you, brother Anthony. Next, we go with What's going on in your community in the world? Do we see how Jabbi is?
6: Okay, can you hear me now?
2: Yes, we can.
6: Okay, I recently read an article entitled New York Schools Gang Unit Pushes the Criminalization of Children. In this particular article, it details how the the New York Department of Education in conjunction um, with law enforcement agencies have come up with a guidebook of sorts of certain mundane characteristics that are common among teenagers that are supposed to use to designate whether or not the child is in gang activity or has a higher risk of being involved in gang activity. And the thing that you have to find particularly puzzling as we're in the age of data collection is that this is another way that they use a database to um, negatively classify black and brown children because overwhelmingly most of the children mentioned in these so-called reports are children of African and Latino descent. And the thing that's interesting, while you look at the number of issues that um you deal with schools in terms of a westernized context, the question is why aren't they trying to find ways to make um schools more – the school system more equitable and more humane for students instead of trying to find ways to criminalize them and put them away? Because we remember the Browder case, because he was a teenager, what, what happened with him? Well, he's talking about there could be who knows how many other browsers, um that could type scenarios that could result by them being negatively classified because of um, the kind of um, decisions that are being made without them even being notified. And the only reason that this even went public is that the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund made a um, public records request in regards to some of these dealings and they were able to get published. So it's just strange. It's very interesting how that request wasn't necessarily made. We might not even have this documentation to know what the game plan is. And this is especially interesting, given who one of the mainstream candidates running for president is. As he tried to denounce himself from these former pale policies, yet they continue without a beat.
2: Okay. We thank you, Brother Jabari. And from Brother Jabari, go Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world, in the community?
5: Well, well, well. I would say ain't nothing going on but the rent, but I'll, <laughs> I'll save that. Um, the, it's been a sad week this week. Uh, uh, a friend, a person who called, who I had the honor of him calling me a friend, uh, passed away. Uh, uh, a brother, Aubrey Johnson. Uh, people in the Northern Virginia, uh, Alexandria, Virginia area, the USA. But may be familiar with them. but anyway, that was a uh, big thing. Uh, this SARS virus, I'm concerned, uh, very concerned that it's, it's there's no cure yet, and that uh, and that it is spreading, and I don't know that we can do a whole lot about it uh, other than keep our hands clean and and uh, and. Uh, but uh, I'm concerned about that. Those are the Two big things that happened for me this week. Thank you.
2: And finally, thank you, Brother Moses. Fine, Brother Moses, we can bring in Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, what's going on in your world in the community?
7: Yes, yes. Uh, Saturday, April 4th, uh, we are having the second annual Kwame and Palmer Conference here in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, the location is to be announced. We don't have a location yet, but we are working on that. And we're also working on a time. I believe the time which had uh um promoted yet. But yes, it is stay stay tuned to that. We do have that coming up in April, say, uh, Saturday, April fourth. That is a confirmed date. Um and in and, that and conference we will be talking about uh his um principles, the principles of Nkrumah. Collectivism, Pan Africanism, uh, having just economic humanism and industrialism. Um, we as Africans we need to focus more on, on industrializing our you know, our resources, um, translating raw materials into some, our commodities in an African way in our style. So that's what we'll we will be discussing on Saturday, April fourth. Last but not least, um last Thursday, uh last Thursday, let me get the right date for you, uh Yes, last Thursday, um, February 20th, day before the 55th anniversary of Malcolm X assassination, a community meeting took place on Richmond, Virginia, on the south side at uh, the Oak Grove Bear Me Community Center with over 100, 100, 100 uh, people from the community came in to speak up against a proposed casino being built in a predominantly black community on the South side, it was uh, a good turnout and people did spoke up um, and did, you know, they didn't call it what it is capitalism, but they totally um, expressed that they're against this capitalist gesture and this capitalist move. So it was refreshing to see on the community saying that, uh, what about the people? What about why are you putting um, people, be, why why are you putting profit before people? And people, this this is becoming a terminology that I mean, for me, I'm 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 in my thirties, you know. So this is becoming a popular terminology that uh, people in my I see people in my peer group or generation using put in uh, profit before people. And this was echoed when they proposed the failed proposal of the Navy Hill Project in Richmond. So it was it it was just refreshing to hear um, people in my generation speaking out. African brothers speaking out against that, and also sisters speaking out against that um, proposed casino. So that's, that's what's going on in my world. And, again, I want to thank the panel, and thank you, Brother African, for, for having me here tonight.
2: All right, panelists, we're going to pause for the calls. and come back. We're going to continue the segment discussion of what's going on that way in our community. And to our listening audience, if you'd like to participate during the segment, Please feel free to call 323 841 So we're going to pause for the calls. So we'll be right back, and you are listening to Africa on the Move with Brother Africa.
8: you from Clarendon And if you come from Portland And if you come from Westmoreland, you're an
1: African
8: So don't care where you come from As long as you're a black man, you're an African No mind your nationality Drop that
4: an example of how how if uh, a person that has uh the resources uh he controls a multimedia corporation and he has and he's uh he's a billionaire and uh he and he was able to spend his own money to buy his way onto the uh on to the candidate race. Now, uh, now, not now, uh, now, at the opposite end, someone who uh, uh, who, who has just as may, who may have just as many good ideas, but comes from a working class or poor background, could not find their way onto the ballot. They would have to uh, raise so much money uh, from their constituency in order to in in in, in order to get into the race. So uh, I think it shows how how the uh, how the, ele- uh, the election process for president is slanted to favor uh, the wealthy over uh, oh, 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 over poor and working class people, and also <clears throat> uh, in terms of his political orientation. He's suffering uh, as far as I'm concerned. He's a, 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 as much uh, a, 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 as much a racist as uh, Donald Trump, except that he's uh, d- the borrowed term from Il- Ilhan Omar, more polished.
2: Mhm. narrative on the understand
3: that, yeah, yeah, brother. Well, yeah. Well, um, let's not underestimate the desire. The Democratic Party to uh, to get rid of uh, Bernie Sanders. They don't want him to win that uh, that nomination. And the reason is very very simple. Uh, you are observed, observed, correct, brother Africa. It's all one party. You know, we like to believe that we have a choice between Democrats and Republic Republicans, but the bottom line is, it's all one party, and they all beholden to the corporations. And one of the things that's very interesting about the Democratic National Convention is that uh, you know, uh, if you recall uh, last the last election when Hillary Clinton was running against the Orange Menace. Uh, in fact, she lost the Democratic nomination, um, and but it was that was that was this, that was hidden from the public. And one of the things that came out of the hearing was that Deborah Wasserman Schultz, the the, the head of the DNC at that time, uh, pr- uh, played a major role in terms of manipulating the numbers to make sure that uh, Hillary Clinton get the nod for the presidency as opposed to Bernie Sanders. So the so the Democratic Party has great. Uh, um, great antipathy Toward the um, Toward the, You know Toward uh, Bernie Sanders And and why would that be Well Bernie Sanders Essentially what he's talking about He's talking about The paradigm shift And Democratic Party Is now with a paradigm shift Because as long as we We have to understand That it's all about the money And because it's all about the money We understand that Democratic poly, uh, Democratic lawmakers Or politicians Receive just as much Financial backing From the capitalist class As Republicans On a On a, on a, on a um, certainly on a on a per capita basis, I mean, there's no question about it that the, 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 the Republicans receive far more money from, from the uh, from the establishment and from wealthy individuals than the Democrats. But nonetheless, Democrats receive a large amount of money from the wealthy corporations, And so the Democrats fundamentally don't want to rock that boat. And so, therefore, we have to understand that what they're doing is what they perceive in their best interest. And so we have to conclude that the kind of opportunism that we opportunism opportunism that we normally affiliate with the Republican Party is very much part of the Democratic Party. So we shouldn't be surprised that the rules would change to accommodate this billionaire because if that's going to undermine Bernie Sanders' ability to get that nomination, then the Democratic Party is all for that.
5: What
2: you make of this, Savari?
6: You know, it's just in vain of um, what I mentioned when we talked earlier about what's going on in our world and society. When you look at the precedents, that force it's very interesting, trying to be a savvy politician, that you notice Bloomberg tried to um, skirt around or dismiss questions in regards to the kind of policies he had in terms of being mayor and how it impacted. those who were citizens in New York during his tenure as mayor, and even still, how those um, particular practices and policies continue today. So when you look at that, and the fact that this kind of person is running for office, makes you question in regards to the process: Are they even trying to do what's best interest of the people? Are they trying to make sure that um, the elite will continue to have the final say? So,
2: brother Maurice. Yes.
7: Uh yes. Um basically, you know, Michael Bloomberg, he already showed his true colors. Um, you know, we're dealing with a system of like Brother Hackey alluded to uh earlier. It's not it's not a um it's not a, you know, two party system. It's a one party system of capitalism. Um, this is this, this is that that you know, it's a private class that deal with only it's a system that benefits the wealthy, you know. It don't benefit the working class of people. And, you know, Mike Mike Bloomberg, it's obvious we know who we as Africans in 2006 when he was mayor, um, when uh, Sean Bell, African um, brother who got gunned down by police, the police was a critic, and good night. That was it. You know, I I didn't hear too much of Bloomberg Bloomberg, um, getting involved with that. Um, He spoke, he made some uh, blanket statements like, oh, they acted excessively, but it was business as usual. So. I mean, I'm not shocked by uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, you know, running running for president. This it's, it's, it's about right. <laughs> Sounds about right when you're dealing with capitalism. And as for Bernie Sanders, yes, Bernie Sanders is speaking about you know socialism, uh, democratic social. He's a democratic socialist, but don't be allude to the to the fact that he's more as, as a Kowski is he's, um, he is basically a system that is you know it's kind of like. Solve so- socialism, but they're embracing the petty bourgeois, making uh, the conditions easier, uh, the condition of life more, you know, easier for the petty bourgeois. So it, it, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of real, you know. Damn if you do, damn if you don't. Um, I mean, as living as an African citizen in America, uh, I would definitely, um, uh, you know, you, probably, you know, the lessons are two evils. You want to vote we, as African, you vote for the Democratic Party. Yeah, Sanders is a is a, is a uh, a lesser threat than some people say he's a lesser threat than uh, Trump. Yeah, it could be, but like 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 the brother stated earlier, we're dealing with a one-party system, and as capitalist as a, as a member of the working class, uh, our objective is to de- to to destroy this system, uh, system and as a whole. So um, that's that's my uh, comments and my contribution, brother.
2: Okay, that's it from Brother Moses. What you make of this this Brother Moses?
5: Well let me say right off everybody's been on point, uh, um and I don't wanna be redundant. Uh, certainly it you know, the two wings of this bourgeois party is is there. The certainly obviously the rest of the evils at this point seems to be Bernie Sanders. And uh, um we 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 like the brother said, we have to we we have to be talking revolution, uh, um uh, we need a grassroots movement and and uh that continues struggle beyond just the election and uh and we gotta be be able to respond to every every uh injustice that, that occurs. We have to have have a, a a consciousness in the in the social order that, that nothing goes overlooked without a demonstration or some some recognition of what what happened, and we need to train up the the generations that are that are coming up now and in, into a political action and uh, an organization and a need for organization you know I spent most of all my life in organization, and uh, i believe in organization and uh, um i hope that uh we can we can uh, be up to the task thank you
2: okay political hey, panelists. i noticed um brother brother Maurice in your what's going on in your world community you talk about there's a call in your community to create and develop a casino and um and one of the things about bringing in these kind of uh enterprises. We know they're normally going to displace large sums of African people. As a matter of fact, you mentioned that the casino will be built within the African community. Now, I'm wondering in terms of how long will we continue to play this game about creating these type of enterprises that it will benefit the African community? Instead, of we when we create the enterprise, instead of we can, instead of the community becomes better, it becomes worse. And I say that because if you look at the behavior of the lottery. They say when they, um, they have these lotteries that by having these lotteries, you know, a lot of communities and schools will get money to help public school, public education. And it seems like if you look at the resources, the money that's coming to the lottery and its relationship having a serious impact on the public school system, the public schools are still shambling. They still need money. They still need funding. And African people still don't benefit from these kind of enterprises. So why there is a why there is a still uh, thrust a thrust for bringing in these kind of enterprises where we don't benefit for the state we don't even get a percentage of the money a percentage of the money that comes from these casinos no one even talk about whether or not if it's guaranteed percentage will go directly to the African communities so what's up with the schemes of things when we are talking about bringing in these these so called enterprises and they will benefit our community. Are uh, we Are uh, we can continue
7: to fall for this okie dope, brother Maurice and Pandas? Yes, uh yes, brother. Um, that's a great point. And the question is, are we going to continue to fall for this okie dope? And I can honestly say, uh, from what I witnessed um from the meeting, it seemed like the community is not really falling is not falling for the um Okie doke. But however uh, hello? Yeah, we see still here. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought I, I had some feedback. Well, however, on the flip side of that, like, uh just spoke about the Patty Bourgeois, um, the nationalist uh, bourgeoisie, the black business owner of Richmond, Virginia. They like this type of, type of stuff. I'm not going to, you know, protect myself. I'm not going to say any names, but you got a lot of uh, black communities and black churches in the community who support this type of capitalist gesture for the, for the to, you know, to... um boost uh to boost their pockets however the people the masses of you know the working class of people the, the masses of people in the communities they see it for what it is they see it you know they see it as like oh you're going to move in you're going to move in this uh casino and basically you're, you're going to um increase the the rates of taxes and basically going to push the african out of the Southside community further down chesterfield or further down you know, then Dinwiddie, whatever, whatever have you. You know, so yes, that's 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 my you know my response to that question. Yes, I would say that the working class, the uh, the people, the masses that live in that in that community, they see it for what it is. But unfortunately, the nationalists, you know, or for lack of better term, the black and not all black business owners, but a good number of them in Richmond here in Richmond, um, kind of drunk the Kool Aid, if you will.
4: I think another factor also is um from what I've seen where where, where casino developments have taken place is to boost tourism and that for the mo and in the long term that only benefits uh the petty bourgeois and bourgeois elements in that community uh in the short term it may create uh some construction jobs. And uh, some low end, uh, you know, uh, you know, tourist industry jobs like, uh, you know, for restaurants or waitresses and waiters, et cetera. But in the long term, it does nothing for the masses of the people. But that's been a trend. If you look at, uh, you know, developments inside the U.S. over the last 40 years or so. Uh, because th- there was a time the only place where where, where where there were casinos was in Nevada, and now they're spread all over the US and uh, you know and uh, you know it's uh, you know primarily you know to uh, uh, to build up the, the, the economies in a lot of these states are sacking because of uh, unemployment. And it's kind of like a, a, a Band-Aid on the festering wound, but it doesn't benefit the working class in the long run at all.
3: Yeah, I, I think the uh, the devil's in the details. Uh, one of the things we want to establish is casino. One of the things you got to ask yourself is, um, you know, uh, to what extent will these uh, entities be taxed? Uh, one of the problems is that when we talk about taxation – Often these, these corporations move into these places, particularly casinos, and they tell the city or the state, they say, listen, we'll set up and we'll uh, create some job opportunities. And of course, the opportunities they, cre- they create, by and large, are few and in between. But anyway, they tell, tell the city or the state that we're going to create job opportunities. Uh, in exchange, you give us, uh, a, uh, you give us a tax breaks in which we pay no taxes for X number of years. And so I'm wondering if, in fact, they're internet kind of uh, negotiations. My guess is that, knowing the history of Richmond, they probably have. They probably, they've probably agreed that if you set up shop in Richmond, we are not going to tax you. Which means that, in, in terms of revenue, it does nothing in terms of enhancing the life or the quality of life for for the citizens, you know, the African community, you know, here in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I think also, brother Africa, the question in terms of uh, you know, um, you, you raised a very good question uh, around uh, around the lotto. And one of the things that's you know, um, is very very interesting when you talk about revenues that come into the state, and these revenues are divided up. Oftentimes, what happens is that you have places like um, particular places that are heavily indebted, like Richmond, who take those resources you know from these from these entities to fill in the budget gaps. So there's a huge deficit. So what they do, as opposed to disseminating the money to the extent that it, it helps the people in the city in terms of how, affordable housing, uh, you know, access, you know, to quality schools, or even uh, even quality jobs, that money is, is headed is geared toward uh, 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 re- limiting or reducing the budgetary gap that exists in terms of in terms of state or the city's uh, coffers. So I think that you know the devil's in the details. So you know, interestingly enough, nobody talks about in terms of you know the, the taxes that relate to this casino coming to Richmond, and I find that very very curious.
2: And it's far along the same logic of oh, they pushing on the legalization of marijuana, and they won't allow people to grow hemp, hemp distilleries, distilleries. And even if they can grow the stuff and make billions and billions of dollars off it, it doesn't trickle down to the African community. We still don't benefit from these so-called new enterprises. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, what the advantages are having them. Matter of fact, we get further behind because many times it divert the resources from our community, from places where they really need it to, these industries and we end up going more backwards. Uh the same game going on if you look at what's going on around with the hemp thing. I read a report earlier, I think up in New York City, and some other places, you know, just to even be able to grow this stuff, they have set the ceiling so high to enter into the bargain, you got very few Africans who who will have the means to even attempt to want to enter into that industry to benefit from that um to benefit from the industry once it has been established. So <laughs> I'm just putting out there to alert of people that we need to stop falling for the okey-doke. You know, we can play while they can pay. So good job, panelists. And my last um, issue for the day is just around this, around this whole question, Brother Hacker, you're talking about this question of fascism, and one of the things about fascism we know that is that when businesses come to dominate and control the government, you know, that's when you're in trouble. Uh, I think recently they pass for rules and regulations that um uh, when it comes to um regulating businesses they have they they are, they are freedom to do anything they want to and won't be held accountable. And uh right now see like definitely I live in this state of time where corporations do as they please and there are no no remedy to to any actions that they may see fit to take that may not be beneficial to the people or be against the interests of the people. So where we go from here? How do we deal with that? Well that's history stated, panelists. How do we deal well how do we deal with a with a society where where um, corporate America is giving blanche to create to to produce and define however they want to um run their entities.
4: Well, first I and think, foremost, go, go, ahead, go, ahead. No, go so ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that we uh, that that one uh, the one, one thing that has to be done. We're in the era where finance capital dominates society, dominates the world right now, and uh, and uh, there uh, there are people that are resisting that all around the world. It's very slow here, mainly because. Of the ideological grip that the ruling class has on the working class in the society, uh, you know, it's been observed that, uh, that 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 the U.S. working class is the most politically backward, uh, you know, in the world, and that's because of the ide- uh, the propaganda war being waged by the ruling class to discourage. Uh, resistance and organization, and that's what we need more of. Because uh, reforms won't work, and uh, history has shown that. And uh, what we need is a change in society. And uh, and uh, let's see, anything that threatens uh, that 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 uh, approaches that at all is uh, ruth- ruthlessly crushed. And I think that's why uh you know the uh the uh the ruling class is so uh is so uh, uh opposed to bernie sanders uh candidacy not because he's a socialist he's not he's at best he's a social democrat but you know but the thing about it though they don't want any any fundamental changes to take place in 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 their power. So it's gonna be a fight and in no order to waste that fight, uh, the masses of African people must be organized.
3: Yeah, well I think the, the, the I think the crust of the problem is brother Brother Africa is one of education. The problem is that you know these these corporations move so so um covertly. And a lot of times people really don't understand the, the, the intimacies that are taking place behind the scene. All they know is what they're privy to on television. And so, therefore, they really don't understand in terms of how, op, how corporations operate. One of the things is that, you know, I'm mindful I'm of the fact that ALEC, the American Legislation Executive Committee, does a very, a, a, a very um, intense job in terms of going around organizing corporations. Uh, one of the things that they have been able to achieve is that um, the elimination of, of, of professors on the university level who have... To say more, um, more objective understanding of the world that we live in, they prefer those professors who have a more conservative binge in, in terms in terms of their, their train of thought, and so therefore, those professors who are so called left leaning uh, in terms of finding jobs become increasingly, increasingly difficult. But people don't realize because behind the scene, nobody I mean nobody overtly talks about that. So behind the scene, this is going on, and so when you apply for a job and, and they got this information right before them. Defining you as somehow based upon your social media accounts, defining you as um, as somehow liberal, then you don't get the job, and you don't even understand why you didn't get the job. You just know you didn't get the job. So clearly, the way the the way in which they work is very surreptitious, um, and so therefore, uh, one of the things is to get people to first engaged in the idea that they want to know, in fact, what is going on. This this is a very very difficult thing. I think that uh, it's, it's, more, it's comfort in not knowing what's going on. So I think one of the problems is that when you tell people, you know, corporations work in, 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 with none the interest of, of the people, uh, for a lot of people it's a very difficult thing to entertain because once you say that, then essentially what you're saying is that um, your, 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 your citizenship uh, in a society is questionable. And people, don't want to, people just don't want to believe that. They want to believe that everything is fair, everything is equal, and there is no problem. So what can you do in terms of rendering that? Uh, Nothing you can do in terms of what we're talking about. We're talking about systematic power. I mean, what can you do other than community exercising systematic power? In other words, unless people get together and understand what the issues are, understand what the challenges are, and working together to fight, I mean, seriously fight, then the reality is that none of the stuff is going to change because they have all the cards. And so, therefore, you know, how do we get people engaged to the point where, you know, that they're willing to actually engage a system which is oppressive. Uh, right now, people are uh, hesitant even to acknowledge that the system is oppressive. So in, certainly we got those individuals whose who jobs, uh, uh, their, their self-interest lies in them uh, uh, telling themselves and telling others that uh, oppression doesn't exist, that it's all in the mind of other, of other human beings, other people. So very, it's a very interesting uh, situation that we find ourselves in, Brother Africa. So without systematic power you know, emanating from the masses of people, that paradigm would not be changed one iota. And so we have to fundamentally understand that reality. So the question, again, is how do we get people to, you know, to engage uh, those issues in society which are not uh, uh, um, uh, a joy to know? So that is a quintessential question.
2: Anyone else like to response We're going on station break, and when we come back, we can discuss this um, week thing. Not free, what's happening to our people? Yes, brother Maurice.
7: Yes, uh, um, I think that the two probably brothers, brother uh, brother Anthony and brother Hakita hit it right on the head. Um, reforms is not the answer. Reforms is just is just basically, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not even a band aid at this point. It's 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 a hallucination. <laughs> You're hallucinating you know is 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 you know it's, it's a pacify. um but in in the in the issue and his um illness of capitalism is still flourishing you know while we allude that oh we you know we're making some type of progress which we're not um at this point as africans we 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 got to take we got to be serious man and and, you, and you, we got to resort to other means that really wasn't utilized fully we got to look at what what was working I mean what, what was benefiting the Africans in Africa and also here in America and on the you know diaspora around you know around to, to, uh, Caribbean. What had a Haitian Revolution was successful? How was the first um African independent uh country in Africa, Ghana was so successful. It was successful through Pan Africanism. Um and at this point we got we're gonna perish Either pan you, you it's pan Africanism or perish at this point, brother Africa. You know that that that's, that's my answer, man. Like we as Africans, man, we gotta we gotta look to uh, further solutions, not not this uh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of mentality. I gotta get masks. I'm going to build my own brand, building the brand of basically your your ancestors, the same brand that the that the slave master put on our ancestors. I'm gonna build my brand. No, we gotta build a uh, not on not not at this point build a community we gotta go back to the village mentality um you know um you know uh, humanist principles um but um, among ourselves we gotta we gotta build the the communal we gotta embrace embrace the collective part, man that's the only way of any type of point of survival this this first of all getting- getting get into the mindset or the strategy of collectivism. And not just um, saying, oh, coming together, uh, unity. No, I mean really, really putting 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 it into action, not in the idealist perspective, like um, you know just speaking about it, uh, you know, power, uh, you know, pumping your fist. Really putting it, putting it into action, um, like like uh, fellow, fellow panelists are doing on the show, and like I'm I'm attempting and try to do with with my organization and with the people who I come in contact with contact what that's on this is what we at right now people i mean <laughs> this is it is what it is man this is what we at.
2: all right you're listening to africa on the move. i'm your host brother africa uh, before we make our transition uh to a theme, unite not free what's happening to us i would like to acknowledge and make this little brief announcement for those who don't know We'd like to to invite all African people and people of conscience and goodwill to come on out to Richmond, Virginia on the 29th of February, and 1st of March at the African Fleet Market located on on Azalea and Richmond-Hareca Turnpike starting from 10 to 6, and on Saturday night from 5 to 9 p.m. there will be a special African fashion show but this weekend is a weekend dedicated to bringing Africa to you. We tell you come on out to the event on this weekend on the 29th and the 1st of March. And for more information, to you purchase your ticket and come on to the fashion show, come to the African dinners, etc. Also, the, um, there are all kind of um, items and materials that you can get from home that will be affordable. We'd like to invite you to support the event. And for more information, please call 804-319-1459. That's 804-319-1459. Since you can't go to Africa, they bring an African to you. Africa Africans from all over the continent. They're going to be here in Richmond to meet the brothers and sisters in this region. So come on out and support the event. So right now what we're going to do, we're going to pause for this cause. Uh, When we come back, we're going to speak to our theme tonight, Matt Free, What's Happening to Us. And we want you to join in with us from dialing 323-679-0841. We'll be right back, and you are listening to Africa on the Move.
9: You have the emergence in human society
2: of this thing that's called
9: the state. What is the state? The state is this organization the police department. It is the Army, the Navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state integral, you you know, you've got to have the police because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourself.
10: no we think, organize the hood under I Ching banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI fine on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like UEP. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I wanna be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony Organize the welcome to a socialist economy A way of life based off the common needs And all my comrades is ready, we just in the seed have a black male Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white man, And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late No more bondage no more political monsters, no more secret space launches, government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets, could have been invested in the future for my comrades, battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat, many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas, rather get shot in their back than fire back, we're tired of that, corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map, that's why I write the shit I write in my rap, it's documented, I minute it, every day of the week, I live. In it, breathing it, it's more than just fucking believing it, I'm holding in one, rolling up my sleeves and shit, it's C-Lo for push-ups now, many headed for one conclusion, Niggas ain't ready for revolution, the average black blackmail, live a third of his life in a jail cell, cause the world is controlled by the white male, and the people don't never get justice, and the women don't never get respected, and the problems don't never get solved, and the jobs don't never pay enough. So the rent always be late. Can you relate? We living in a police state.
2: Brother Africa, it's always an honor to come to your homes this evening where we can speak truth to power and provide you with some information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. That's to help liberate your people and help liberate humanity for all the very forms of oppression. What we're going to do now, we're going to make a transition to Athenianite, not free, that's right, we are not free, and what is happening to us. What we're going to try to do with this segment is to try to textualize or conceptualize um, what's going on with our people? This whole question around freedom is something that uh, must be dealt with. You know, We must fight against and eradicate this whole illusion that we are a free people. And to do this with our panelists, they're going to draw from their experiences and give us their analysis of what they acquire for certain um, materials that were viewed this past weekend and look at. And we'd like to have the discussion about About these materials and as it relates to our theme, not free, what is happening to us. Panelists, again, as always, we welcome you back. I'd like to ask you to pay your attention, um, um, focus your attention to that was an interesting um, documentary, a little video um, that was talking about the issue dealing with Hank Williams, who is a country singer, and he used to do the nightly Monday night thing on on National Football League, and he happened to be interviewed on a, a network Fox TV network. And He made some interesting statement about who he perceived as the enemy to American people, and he said Barack Obama is the enemy and in his statement he will did an interview on uh, on Fox News. Well, this comment raised some issues with the network to televise um, Monday Night football he end up losing his contract and his relationship with the station, and many people were arguing around the issue of freedom of speech. You know do people have the right to still as individuals to speak their political views as long as it's not related to maybe the nature of the work they were doing. So, panelists, I think this will be an in, in, important question, because it does deal with the issue of power and who we have the right to speak. So, panelists, start with you, brother, Hackey, when you saw that clip here and were listening to the de- debate,
1: mm-hmm. uh, what mm-hmm. were some of the
2: issues coming in your mind? How did you view that particular situation that went down in terms of the fire, Hank Williams, based on the statements he was making as it relates to um, how he perceived the so-called president of the United States at the time? And... He also made an interest statement, which I think was more about that than anything, when he alluded to that. You know, if you are the enemy, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't talk or mingle with your enemy. You don't go and play golf with your enemy, such as, you know, you don't invite a so-called Hitler to play golf with a net-, net Yahoo. So, what you make up that particular fiasco, Brother hacking
3: Yeah, I, I I I thought that. Um... Uh, I don't think uh, Hank Williams Jr. is then naive. I think he understood clearly the impact of the statement that he was making. Now, the thing is that he has that right to make that statement, and I, I, you know, I'd you i be the first to defend him in terms of his right to make idiotic statements. But one thing you should understand that when, we, when you talk about in the context of capitalism, when you talk about money, one thing you've got to understand is that anything that gets way in terms of potential that brand making money, is going to be frowned upon. And so you think about the NFL, which is 70% African. And you talk about the large fan base, which is African and uh, and or people of color, then clearly one thing they don't want to do is antagonize the the, the, the at least the NFL doesn't want to do is antagonize those, afford them the opportunity to make some money. So Hank Williams Jr. should certainly understand that by making such a, a, a racist statement, and of course it was racist because that's the whole intent. He was made, he was a just he was, a, he was a alluding to the demarcation between between you know different ethnic groups. And the notion that uh you know that whites interacting with um with Africans on their golf court golf course in and of itself was inappropriate. And of to use use Barack Obama as an example, but in essence what he was talking about, he was talking about, you know, you across the board, you know, uh race relationship race relations. So clearly he understood the 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 implications of the statement that he made. So the NFL did what they had to do. Uh, you know, did it impact in terms of um uh people's um would it impact people's ability to watch uh, um, uh, Monday Night Football? Probably definitely would impact the African community. And once they get, a, once the African community find out what he said and, and that sign comes on, that in itself would be enough to turn enough Africans off to compel them to turn the television off, which means that lower ratings, which means less money for NFL. NFL simply not going to tolerate that. And so, therefore, uh, Hank Williams Jr. had to go. But clearly Hank, Hank, but clearly Hank Williams Jr. Is, epitomizes the mindset of, you know, of, of – of, uh, a lot of people in the Deep South uh, who unwillingness mean that life is fair. So, you know, I, I, I my position is that NFL deal what they had to do.
2: Okay. Let's see with Brother Anthony. Where you stood on the position, Anthony? What you took from that particular um, documentary?
4: <laughs> I um I concur with the points hockey made, you know the NFL had to do what had to do to protect its financial interests i mean uh i mean uh uh the revenue generated through football was based on popularity so uh, so you don't uh, you know you don't want to you, you know do anything uh any sort of any form of entertainment or athletics is based on popularity. And and uh, and the popularity dictates how much money you're able to make off of that. So you don't want to do anything to alienate, uh, you know, a sector of the audience. Even if it not might not necessarily be the largest sector, it is, you you know, it it, it is a a major audience and. so uh, you know, uh, NFL did what it had to do to protect, uh, you know, its financial interests. Which is not to say that there aren't Europeans that 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 uh, le- that don't legitimately hold those views. There probably are, probably quite a few of them, but not necessarily all, or or even a majority of them hold those views.
2: So, Bobby, where you? Win on this issue, or what did you took from this discussion?
6: Well, um, in theory, I'm not um opposed in terms of the criticism that um Mr. Williams had in terms of the administration at the time, given um what was going on. However, if you look at his political background from a racial aspect, there are some things, some very troubling signs in terms of what he represents in terms of being aligned with um, those that are more so alt-right in terms of the kind of politics and views and the kind of sentiment in, the, in the way in which he was expressing this sentiment. And the NFL, while it often is in business with those kind of individuals, there are a large compendia of persons that would um, be, speak very positively about the administration. So from a business standpoint, they had to do what they had to do to protect that dollar because they did not want a boycott of, of its biggest supporters saying that they weren't going to come to the games because that would be a real problem
5: for them.
2: Hey, Brother Moses, your, your, your assessment of that, of that situation?
5: Yeah, I, you know, it's no use repeating over and over again. Certainly that's the situation. Uh, it's an economical, uh, political decision to preserve Preserved income and uh you know we we find today that you know pinkk Williams re- represents a, a constituency out there that he has uh a followers of him and his and uh and that ideological trend of white supremacy ultimately uh, uh we know that the The Frenchman said you could dead the extended emancipation in the society by the extended emancipation of his female sex. And uh, we find that, you know, Trump, I think there was a majority of white women uh, voted for Trump. That's my understanding. And so uh, 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 Hank Williams, you know, and uh, his... Base and Trump and his base—they all intermingled together in a, a the same old boy network. And you know this—you know—we just have to face it. I mean, there's some races in this country, and otherwise we wouldn't be have the racists in chief uh, in command. Thank you. But and you know,
2: brother, brother Africa, Maurice,
5: when, when me, you know, when he
2: one second, brother Hacky, let me get brother Maurice we ain't on this, and then we'll come back to you. Go ahead, brother Maurice.
7: Um, basically, uh, we got to look at, uh, you know, is he calling him, uh, is he calling Obama an enemy because of his racial complex, racial identity, or of his economic, uh, motivations? And I would, I would just say real briefly that, uh, as, as, as the masses of working class, the African people. Uh, we got to understand that uh, Barack Obama. We 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 love the image. We love the you know the symbolism, the idealism. Uh, he oh he's the second coming of Martin Luther King and uh, Martin Luther King set so Obama could come. Uh, Martin Luther King march so Obama could run for office. And uh, you know you got to understand that you know that's why Hank oh old, old boy Hank country boy Hank <laughs> Hank I believe um, was definitely uh, calling Obama an enemy due to his race. But Obama, let's not get it twisted. Uh, Obama is an enemy of working class people. Um, he's an enemy of African people. I mean, we got to look at his track record of what he's done um, in Africa and to Africans who attend HBCUs, he, uh, funding um decrease in historic, historically black colleges and universities. Af, uh, AFRICOM basis increase on on uh, in Africa, uh, drone bases increased in Africa, so, and uh, and also we talk about this on the show over and over again. What happened in Libya with Muammar Gaddafi? Uh, Gaddafi, you, we can put it on Hillary, we could put it on Obama, but they both are the same, the same tree, the same root of the tree, capitalism, <laughs> you know, Americanism. This is this is this is what it is. So when we look at talking about enemies. Um, we can't be confused about, oh, he's an enemy of race. I'm pretty sure he would call Michael Bloomberg or whoever, Trump, he would call them people, he, w- he wouldn't call them enemies, I don't believe, uh, based on the, the economic background or the racial background. But, you know, if you look at Colin Kaepernick or what he doing, or what he, you know, he's a, a, outspoken. I, I, des- I definitely he would call him more of an enemy um, than he did Obama. And, and, and you know, so that, that that's my whole take about it, um, my whole response.
2: Cause I he something you
7: want to say. Yeah,
3: well, I I I think one of the things is when you when you go back and you look at uh, his pedigree, uh, Hank Williams um, Junior. makes no secret that you know he's he's, he's a hardcore racist. He makes no 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 bones about that. Uh, he's very proud of the fact that you know that he's very much you know um, uh, pro South the way it used to be. And so you know when so when you have that kind of mentality. And you make statements, you know, uh, to the extent that uh you so you denigrate somebody based upon their association with somebody of a different skin color. Then essentially what you're saying, you know, essentially what you're saying is that uh, uh the that, that the the person that you have the problem with is perceived as a person of disgust. And so therefore for me, you know, uh, you know, that kind of vitriol, that kind of hatred toward people based upon skin color, I think is something very much just the American way. And so therefore, you know, I think NFL did the only thing they could do. I mean, this kind of thing that if you legitimize it on any level, then it tends to spread. And unfortunately, it is spread. Now that you've got the Orange Minutes in the house and more and more people are embracing their racism, it can only lead to very, very bad things happening in society. So I think the NFL did the correct thing. You
2: you know, panelists, in terms of listening to that particular segment, uh, one things came in.
6: Brother
2: Uh, Yes, Brother Brother, Jabari.
6: you mind if I get a, um, another point in regarding this? Yes, you can. In regards so I can to Hank Williams' um, controversy with discussion, it was very interesting as I'm reading this article, there was a discussion that took place um, between three um, ESPN sports analysts. Well, excuse me, two ESPN sports analysts and another sports writer. The three were Bomani Jones, Paul Feinbaum, and Dave Zirin. And Paul Feinbaum is well regarded as the voice of the radio for the SEC, the Southern Coast Conference, the most influential conference in college football. And this is somebody who has, in the past, has had numerous controversy himself in terms of using certain racially coded language. And it should be noted that Mr. Feinbaum, with the politics and the entities that he represents, he was quick to defend what Mr. Williams said in terms of the racial component of it. He tried to downplay that sentiment. So yet again, it wasn't a question of that those who run in their field didn't necessarily agree with Mr. Williams, but they had to do what was going to be best for business because it was a very um, idiotic move in terms of trying to express that kind of sentiment that openly. But yet his friends who have the same viewpoint, look how quick they were to defend him. So that's just something to think about as you talk about organization and institution. Because I guarantee you, Mr. Williams was not hurting for money because those in the right way networks probably were getting him all kinds of bookings. But yet again, that's why you look at institutions; they're gonna support those who have like my ideal.
2: Yeah, I think one other sport reporter, Bomani Bomani Jones, uh, he had an interest to take. He was in um, opposition to that, but his position was an interesting one because he said he was also representing a brand and he was pushing a brand and by being associated with Monday Night Football you know that you know as a entity you know he was you know he, he reflecting the brand he reflecting that, that, that entity the NFL football so they had every right to do what they did but more importantly panelists I'd like to get your perspective from somewhat of a legal perspective in terms of Understanding this whole concept of the Constitution as a tool, how it can be used as a weapon to um, to support any argument that you want to make. For example, in listening to that particular episode, I thought it really interesting when one of the sports announcers made made the observation that observation that Constitution speaking, he you know he will not you know the First Amendment allow you to right to you know you have the right to speak and no government can, the government cannot deny you that constitutional right to speak. But at the same time, the Constitution also gives employees, ent- entities, the right to deny you the right to speak as it relates to their interests. So how do you reconcile those two particular positions? So in other words, when you represent companies, they can deny you free speech. There are no free, such thing as free speech when you talk about representing corporations corporation of men had the to find a to dictate what the say said. Your response to that panelists? That phenomenon?
4: I think that interpretation um you know has some some merit. Uh the First Amendment uh pertains to what uh the US Constitution allows. Now uh, 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 a corporation which the NFL is, can have th- th- their own set of rules regarding what you can say uh, in public. Uh, you-, you-, you know, regarding uh, you know re- 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 regarding them, and that's how you know corporations can uh, can regulate what uh, what employees say publicly about uh, uh, about their organization, such as Amazon, for example. And uh you know, so uh you know, so the First Amendment applies to uh uh to uh uh you know, primarily to 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 talking about when, when it uh, you know, concerning what 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 you, what you can say regarding official government officials. But it does not extend to uh public statements made about private corporations though.
3: And it. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, I mean, the government gives the right to freedom of expression. Uh, but in the case of Hank Williams Jr., his expression has the government allowed him to make the statement. They didn't intercede to prevent him from saying it. He said it, so that wasn't an issue. So the question, in terms of you know, as a private entity, uh, do they have the right, you know, to uh, safeguard their brand? And uh, and they do. It would be great if we lived in a world in which, you know, corporations don't penalize you simply because you said something that undermines their bottom line. But our human beings haven't evolved to that point yet. And until we until we create a truly socialist system, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. So, you know, um, so I, I think that um, the question in terms of freedom of speech, often people get it confused and they think that, simply because, you know, you're given that right to freedom of speech, that that means that it exists across the board. And of course, we know about the example in terms of yelling fire in the crowded theater. We understand the implications in terms of, you know, uh, simply saying anything you want to say uh, whenever you want to say it. Uh, so we have to be mindful that there, there are repercussions in terms of, given where you are, uh, making certain kinds of statements. Um, you know, one of the things that... Um, I can recall back in my uh, my Navy days, um, I was uh, on the way back to the ship, and uh, this, this, this white sailor says, um, he was at the door, and he's saying,
1: these,
3: you know, he cursing, talking about the, these people, to, these, these effing people taking too damn long, you know, is these is these is these, these, these niggers, you know, who are uh, slowing things up, you know, because they're doing all the bus driving. And I asked him, I said, what did you say? And he said, brother, I'm just saying that niggers also. so... I mean, you know, he had the right to say that. I had the right to hit him with the right hook. You know what I mean? Because you know, um, you know, you got to be mindful, you know, of repercussions when you utilize the free speech. So I, I think that in this case, you know, um, I, I, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, uh, NFL was correct, and that's my view on, on that question, Brother Africa.
2: Okay, panelists. Anybody else? If not, what we'll do? We're gonna pause for the calls when we come back. We're going to talk about this whole question of the role of the music industry and its relationship to mass incarceration when it comes to African people and people who are oppressed. We'll be right back. you listen to Africa on the Moon.
0: If you think of the Middle East in this Modern time. You can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs needs her freedom. Palestine. Needs our love Needs needs our love
1: love.
0: Palestine Palestine. Needs her freedom
1: freedom.
0: Palestine Palestine. Palestine. Needs Needs our love There seems to be no answer To give us the reason why Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom, Palestine needs our
2: love. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the moon and we agree with the artist. Lucy Murphy Palestine needs her freedom. We're walking back to Africa the move we will continue our discussion today on not three what's happening to us. We're trying to textualize and conceptualize This whole question of what is going on with us, and right now we're going back to our political panelists and this
1: mm-hmm.
2: everything discussed this 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 documented piece that I recently um, shared earlier this week where our panelists. Around this whole question of the music industry and their role and their relationship to this whole issue of mass incarceration, mass incarceration as it relates to African people and oppressed communities. Panelists, that was a documentary written talk about uh, the music industry. Uh, one of the central points from this documentary was that it talks about the role that the music industry has played and continues to play on not only how do they shape And direct the content And, and what type of mu- music That would be pushed But this type of music that they would push Would be music geared towards Encouraging our youth To become part of the pipeline When you look, look at that documentary We start with your brother Jabari As a youth um, What came to your mind Looking at the role of this music industry And what how they use The music that African people used to use against them to uh, Mm -hmm. increase this whole question of filling up the private prisons.
6: You know, I'm sure my fellow panelists will agree, but I'm of an that when the music has lost its soul, that's indicative of a society that's all out of whack. Because one thing you can say, especially when it comes to us as people of color, we've always had music, Um, As a form of therapy, no matter how rough things were, we had music, whether it was the spiritual, whether it was the blues, whether it was gospel, R&B, hip-hop, you name it, because we created it all. We always had that therapeutic as an outlet, and what we're getting far too often today is music that is encouraging and embracing the behavior that um, will result in devastating consequences. Let's look at some of the things we've talked about before. There was a particular instance where an artist was talking about a situation and they ended up um, giving him, you know, a big prison sentence because of what was, And they said that the lyrics could be used to indict him. And this was set for the president because we never heard of this happening before. And then in regards to um, what um, Brother Crazy Bone was talking about um, in terms of the music industry, there is far, far too often when you, especially if you're not making your own meeting, you're signed to one of these labels, they are going to force an agenda on you. And they're going to force an agenda, whatever they feel is most marketable. So if they want you to market genocide and juice, that's alcohol, weapons, drugs, um, commit you with sex, et cetera, no matter how immoral that is, that's what they're going to want you to rap about, want you to market, and want you to get out to um, an audience that take it up so it can be played every hour on the radio. So this is the kind of stuff that's going into our kids' minds. Because if we see... If poison goes into our kids' minds, what's going to come out of their mouths? That same poison. What they digest in, they're going to regurgitate out, unfortunately. So we have to understand that, especially for those um, listening in the audience that are parents or guardian-like um, figure, be mindful of what your children are really taking in terms of just culture in general, not just music, but in culture in general so they can get those things that instill positive African values.
2: You know, Brother Anthony, uh, there's old saying that artists are not born, they are created and promoted. Looking at the documentary, mm-hmm. it seems to uh, validate the statement. Your response to that particular documentary in terms of the role of the music industry and how they are a major part of um, ensuring that there's a pipeline from, you know, there's a prison pipeline that will continue to exist mm-hmm. and the private prisoners will continue to be full at the encouragement of the, of the music industry, your response to that particular documentary,
4: yeah. really yes, um, culture is is one of the many fronts in which war is being raised uh, uh, waged against us, and this uh, and this particular documentary is an outstanding example of that. Uh, let's see around. Uh, around the uh, 1980s, the U.S. started uh, privatizing prisons. And uh, one of the things that came out of the interview was that several uh, music-producing corporations, uh, you know, started investing heavily in these uh, private prisons so 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 in order to guarantee uh you know that there would there would be that, that, uh there would be a uh, that there would be a, a, an influx uh through the pipeline they took over hip hop basically and uh perverted it uh because uh you know the uh the 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 uh you know the things about hip hop That uh, Brother Jabari said earlier Are true That it used to be A a reflection of the struggles And life in our society And uh, And uh, these uh, You know uh, uh, Largely Zionist Controlled uh, Producers perverted that And uh, And And uh, you know and, and 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 generated music that reflected all the negative aspects of our uh, cultural uh, personality uh such so as uh you know uh thought life uh, uh uh promiscuity prostitution drug use et cetera and uh, and uh, and those and those artists that tried to, uh, you know, use uh, use culture in a way to uplift that people, you know, like X Clan, uh, Public Enemy, uh, you know, KRS One, their their work got suppressed. Not that they don't rap anymore; just that it's just that they it's just that they, that they don't get any play. And uh and uh these corporations using their monopoly uh used to to dominate uh their waves. And uh that's why uh you know uh hip hop has lost the power that it used to have, you know, when, when it was uh, a struggling art form. Hacking it seems yeah. that
2: the music museums- the music industry has made a constant choice on who will become a well-known artist, what they will say and do, and use them as a vehicle to encourage the youth of our community to encourage them to participate in activities that will lead them into prison. Now, what we're really talking about as well as, you know, looking at the music industry you know, the music industry is heavily controlled and owned by um, Zionist forces. And comes, historically, that continually raises the question is, can Zionism be a friend to African people? Or are they friends to African people? Again, this is another case where we see them in their history. They are not friends to the African people. So what do you make of this whole question? How the industry, again, has manipulated our human talent to use against us, and we are not even conscious of it. Because if you tell these brothers and sisters not to write that kind of or sing that kind of music, they would view you as the enemy against them. So how do we deal with that, Brother Ike?
3: Yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the easiest way to oppress a people is to condition them to oppress themselves. And, of course, that um, the lyrics in the music Goes a long way in terms of impacting the way young people think, and like the proverbial computer, what you put into it is what you get out of. What you get out of it. So that is a fundamental problem in terms of uh, or rap music as it exists today. And when you go around the world, and you know, you sit there and you look at television, and you go, or you hang out, and you go to a club and you look at a large video screen, and what you're seeing is projection of Snoop Dogg or Little Wayne, and you're just shaking your head like you know. But and then you begin to realize that this stuff gets legitimized not just in America, but throughout the world. So they want a particular perception of African people to generate the world. And so for those people in the world who never ran into African people born in the U.S., their perception of African people is based upon those stupid-ass videos that they observe. But it's part of, this, part of, the, part of the grand strategy. You know, one thing for the Africa, um, uh there's a song by Golf Brooks called uh, Thunder Roll. It's a country music song. Now they took that off for the longest time, simply because it wasn't—they say it wasn't representative of country music. It was a video about the, the the guy cheating on his on his wife. You know, he comes home smelling like smelling the other woman's perfume, and the wife realizes he's been cheating. So she confronts him. He hits her, knocks her down, and she pulls out the gun and blows him away. Well, those individuals who were connoisseurs of country music position was that that's simply not uh, in keeping with. Uh, country music uh, standards, and so therefore the video was taken down for the longest period of time. So clearly when you contrast that with what was happening in terms of African music, and you look in terms of these imagery, in terms of the lyrics, and what's coming out with these, particularly with these young brothers and young sisters, the kind of, the kind of absurd things that they're saying, which is totally void of any politics, totally void of any understanding of the objective world that we live in, it speaks volumes in terms of this whole conditioning process that exists in the minds of our people who are... We're unwittingly, you know, uh, you know, creating to the oppression of our people, not even realizing that what they're doing is contributing to the oppression of our people. They don't understand that. So, you know, um, you know, um, I talked to a brother back in the 80s, um, the great um, M- uh, uh, MC Mamimi, uh, MC Mamizi, um, the overseer. Uh, he was at Sony, he was there talking about uh, trying to get a record deal with Sony. And this was back in the 80s. And I asked him, How did it go? How was it going? He said, Well, not too good. I said, What's up? So he told me. He said, Well, they want us to stop talking, you know, we don't do cultural rap music. We want the more mainstream kind of rap music, you know, the kind of, you know, legitimizing criminal, you know, criminality, you know, hustling, or disrespecting one another, killing one another, you know, over trivial things. And this is the kind of music that we want. If you can't do that, we can't give you a contract. So I got my first inkling of what was going on back in the eighty in terms of that phenomenon. Plus, when I listened to the music, I realized there was a drastic change from the original hip hop, you know, out of the Bronx with Afrika and Bambaataa and Red Alert and guys like that, which was very, very positive, to into the early eighties in which the music became very, very negative. We started talking about you know, you know, me me beating you up, me shooting you, me drug dealing, and all those kind of stuff. So there was a a a. a a, a big change in terms of the original message of rap music to what transpired some years later. Now, I begin to realize that there was something going on here that wasn't quite right. And so what Crazy Bone is talking about, <coughs> you know, from the group of Bone, Drug, and Harmony, what he's talking about is that something they've been doing for a long, long time. And it's a problem in terms of why it's so important to adequately understand precisely what's going on in society. Because if we don't understand what's going on in society, we if we don't um, um, deconstruct if we don't critically analyze what's going on in society then we become duped we become part of our own oppressors and we don't even know it and so to my black conservative friends I would always say to them you know what the things you say sometimes you have a point but you understand the much broader reality is that a lot of things you say are counterproductive and geared toward the oppression of your own people without you even understanding what you're saying but they're being conditioned to believe that what they're saying is just and sound and so therefore you know they continue to repeat it so clearly this terms of what we think is really important. And what we think so is based upon what we hear, what we put into our brains. So as, as you've already said, one of the things the parents got to do, you have to monitor what your, you know, what your kids listen to. I mean, you're not going to always be successful, but at least make them conscious of the fact that you are aware of the history of rap music and you always understand the difference between positive rap music and, 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 and negative rap music. And by the way, in the U.K. they have a similar problem with grime rap music and positive music you have people like low-key and um um black the rapper you know coming with positive stuff and then you have the negative kind of music coming from young brothers and sisters out of the uk pushing pushing you know you know all the all absurd kinds of uh things and you know in, in, in the community so clearly you know uh yes it's all part of a grand strategy when you talk about the role designers play in terms of facilitating that, hell yes the Zionists have never been friends of African people. And for any African who thinks that the Zionist is your friend, then it's, a, it's an African who's naive. So we understand, what, now we make a distinction between Zionism and Judaism. Those individuals who are Jewish, those individuals who practice the, the, the religious system of Judaism, who really believe in the wonders of humanity, those are our brothers and sisters. Those who practice racism, those who position is that they have a fundamental right given to them by God to exploit other people based upon skin color and or ethnicity, then those kind of people we categorically reject. So definitely the, the, the designers have a major part to play in terms of the, the, the perception of African people, uh, not just in America, but throughout the world, uh, in terms of you his, his
6: presentation throughout the world.
2: Brother yeah, excuse me. Yeah, go ahead,
6: my brother. The mic is yours. You mind if I chime in with another point?
2: Yeah, the mic is yours, Sabari. So
6: And I think Brother Maurice remembers this, but Brother Alston and Brother Maurice, do you remember when we were at the program and we had the chance to dialogue with Professor Griff, one of the original members of Public Enemy, a couple years ago? Yes, I do. And remember, um, as we were talking with Brother Griff, we were asking him about what happened, because this is one of those um, stories you hear over and over again, for those that know true hip-hop history, in regards of the kind of politics he was advocating there were some behind the scene beatings that he was not privy to until they were ready to dismiss him from public enemy. But based off of his ideology, they basically exiled him from the group, even though Chuck D um, was ultimately against it because that was the administrative information. But ultimately, they got enough people to buy into him being removed, and he was able to detail this information to us as we were in person. So, in regards to what Brother Crazy Bone was saying, that's proof positive from a personal experience I had where I got to talk to a hip-hop pioneer legend about just how they would do you. And the funny thing is, the only people that were keeping it honest with them at the time was not Russell Simmons, but it was those people like Liar Cohen and those other people that were the key executives. They told me exactly what was going on. As they had debates. They could debate about it and go on at the end of the day. But it's very interesting. Your own people will be the ones that will oppress you because you try to do something different. And if you try to talk to the power of the beat, they'll talk to you. But the ones um, who are your contemporaries they act like they don't know you, all of a sudden they get um, stage fright or something.
2: Yes. Brother Bobby. Yes. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Brother Bobby. I want your response to that, but I just want to add to this whole notion, listen, listen to Brother Crazy Bone. He also talked about those who really controlled the music industry. That means they took orders from them, which means this whole so-called the power and influence of Jay-Z and those kind of so-called African producers are just illusionaries. I mean, it's just illusions. They have no power to dictate music. It doesn't come from them. Your response to that brother, Maurice?
7: Yes, definitely. And we got to understand dialectics. And um, not only as revolutionaries, but the powers that be, the enemy, the capitalist enemy, they understand dialectics. They like to exploit. The weaknesses, the negatives of our creations, or or our groups or organizations, organizations, for example, not only with hip hop, but with gospel music, gospel music, um, traditional hymns started off, as we all know, you know, as freedom songs, getting out of this bondage of slavery. I see you up north, you know, running up north, communication to overcome the slave the slave system, and then now today you have today gospel, with is commercialized with um going to heaven to get my, me a mansion uh damn i'm gonna get my birthstone on the gate you know all that type of stuff it's commercialized the same thing with um afro pop uh we have fella 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 Kuti talks he was he was um he, he made music about revolution um fighting fighting the system fighting these neocolonialists and that's thing you know we, we the same thing they did with the traditional um gospel music they have uh, uh, present-day Afro pop with twerking, and twerking was an aspect of Afro pop, as as we see with um, fellow performances. But now today they explored that, and that's they make that the main uh, position of Afro pop, uh, the main focus, not the revolutionary approach. Um, the same thing with hip hop, uh, with with like I said with gospel reggae, you know Peter Tosh. The list goes on and on. And not only um, with downloading the messages by by exploiting negatives. It also drowned out the community aspect of these groups, of hip-hop groups, uh, specifically with hip-hop. Damon Dash uh, with Rockefeller, he don't spoke about how um, the powers that be, the capitalists broke up, you know, broke up the group, separated him from Jay-Z, making Jay-Z, you know, bringing Jay-Z more into that capitalist sector out of that petty bourgeois sector he was in, if you will. Um, That's what Damon Dash was speaking about. Um, Damon Dash. He, you know, he's a part of bourgeois, but he have the he has the understanding, at least the nationalist understanding of you know, uh, I guess for us, by us and the black that black aspect uh, aspect of that. But um, you know, that, this is what they do, man. They explore our weaknesses. They do they did it with uh, political organizations, Black Panther Party, and the us um organization, uh, nation as we talk about the fifty fifth. Uh, anniversary of Malcolm X assassination. They did it with the Nation of Islam and with Malcolm X, SCLC, Martin Luther King, King's organization, uh, SNCC organization. This, this is this is what they do. They support our, our negatives and our weakness. And as as revolutionaries, we gotta understand how to utilize dialectics to conform a negative into a to a positive positive that would benefit the the the, the mass uh masses of people the working class. Um, this is what we have to understand. And like I said, um, you know, like you said, Bone Thugs uh, Crazy Bone understand this, Scarface, he understood that. Uh Willie D of the group Ghetto Boys, um, they under they understood that. You know, in our R and B uh they did the same thing with Rhythm and Blues. Rhythm and Blues was speaking about wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed. I can't sing but you understand what I'm coming from with Teddy Pendergrass, that Philadelphia, Philadelphia sound, or Gil Sky Heron, you know, um, they you don't get the the messages no more. You get the the negative, like Brother Haki alluded to earlier. You get the main negative uh, of 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 our messages, you know. But like I said, they they take they break the group down, like Brother Jabari spoke about. Professor Griff, I do recall that meeting. Uh, of what he was saying, yeah, they isolate is isolation, you know, and they exploited the other member, uh, Flavor Flav. They took him and, and 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 exploited his weaknesses, man, with with drugs. He was on, you know, he was on drugs, and they used last money, like you said, these monopoly uh, corporations. That's what they do, man. They play off our weaknesses, if, and, and if we don't, if we don't have a political understanding uh, or of economics. They, they—that's what they do. They exploit us. They'll, they'll prop you up as a Sean Puffy Cones, as a Ice Cube, as a Dr. Dre. You understand? Um, it went from you know the N.W.A. after Police to just Dr. Dre now, it's, it's the same thing with Eazy uh, uh, beefing with or going against Dr. Dre or Eazy going against Ice Cube. They, you know, they, 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 they break the groups up. They—that's what they do, man. They don't, they don't like the collective or anything no more. And, and, it, and, and like Jabari alluded to, it breaks up. They definitely don't want the political aspect because at one point hip hop was pan african you know heavy d and the boys you, they had the traditional afro- african get- uh um you know just not not only being um pan african culturalist but they were speaking about uh step stepana you played on your show brother lee um a f r you know i c a angola zimbabwe you know what i'm saying so yeah so these 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 um enemies I don't want to be too long winded but I think I made my point. But these you know, the Cabalists they understand what's going on. They understand what we're about and what we can do if that communal aspect was there, uh, you know, that uh collective aspect. So that's 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 the first thing. They broke up the temptations and made, you know, every you know, in the of that individualist approaches. They were roughing. Um, you know, that that's that's what that's what we're up against.
2: Brother Moses. Should we take a different view towards the DJs today and look at their role as also being accomplices or being part of the pipeline, pro, pipeline process, knowing that they are taking orders from those who control the industry?
6: And, Brother Africa, you mind if I take the first um, shot at what you just posed?
2: Yes, go ahead, Brother Jabari.
6: Something that we have to be very cognizant of, and I, and I know the panelists are filming when I say this, and I hope the viewing audience hear me very clearly. That's if these radio stations even have DJs anymore. Because far too often I've gone to events, and whereas before you had to be able to switch records, be able to scratch, be able to actually DJ, we have so much technology, the laptop is going to do the work, and you just standing behind the turntable moving your hands, making it look like you're doing something when the technology is doing all the work. So that's another way they found a way exactly. to even eliminate the jobs that hip-hop has provided because things become automated and you have technology doing it. And, heck, if they really want to get fancy in the future with the way the robots are coming, you're going to find the robots doing all this stuff and we won't even have human DJs in the future <laughs> the way things are headed. So you got to understand there's a tech game that's part of it, and that's one reason why we talk about positive hip-hop artists That's one reason the artist chameleon doesn't so much focus on music, but he has entered the world of technology because he won't understand exactly what's going on because he saw that there was a correlation in terms of, as we get more technical, certain things that artists used to could do, they don't have that control anymore because of machines and um, other mechanisms in place. So, yeah, they're definitely um, culpable, but at the same time, that's even if they exist because their existence isn't guaranteed, unfortunately.
2: I
5: to Tabari. Everyone else, Brother Moses, your response to this subject matter? Yes. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's uh, I think, you know, these these young people uh, mainly, uh, I guess some of them are getting kind of old now, but the go-go and the pop and the, all that, uh, uh, I think they, they sometimes unwittingly, you know, uh, uh complicit with this prison the pipeline uh mentality and and uh uh and you know um uh, i with grand Theft auto and all there's a whole culture there there of, uh uh and so you know it's it's a generational thing uh too uh but yeah its it's the industry's it's The industry's it is, and I guess we have to recognize that. Thank you.
2: Hi we're yeah. Go ahead, brother Mavis. Go ahead. I
7: just, I just, I just want to make a a, a a add on, just real real brief. Um, like Jabari hit it right on the head. You don't have uh this jockeys no more, man, on a radio station. You 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 have a lot of um comedy uh, comedians um that over. It's a lot of... It's not even... The, like you said, the, 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 the skill set, man, of DJing is not even there no more, man. It's just like... It's a lot of... Um, how can I say this? Propaganda, political commentary. Um, a lot of um, uh, racial stereotypes that they... You know, that you see on these radio stations. Uh, radio stations. And it's just... You know, it's, 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 it's a bunch of trash. <laughs> I'm mean, just to be honest, man. It's, at this point, it's, it's, it's trash, man. It's not... Now, what I could say though, going up, when I when I travel up to DC or up north, you got the local radio station up there. You have some, um, you have some pretty good radio stations, uh, local ones that play, play some, you know, some uh, that 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 distribute good information, um, good uh, political information, also good music. But right here in in the Commonwealth, man, what I hear, man, on a daily on a day to day basis, man, is, is 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 a bunch of trash. And like I just want to just want to add to that that good point uh, that Jabari made. Like, the art of, of disc jockeys is is, is, is you know, it's not there no more. The Jam Master Jays, it's it's, it's not there, man.
2: All right, panelists, job well done. To our listening audience, should listen to Africa on the Move. This is the first part of the two part series. Not free what's happening to us we we'll are continue This discussion next week We encourage you to join us Next Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. So right now Panelists and in terms of closing out I'd like to get your final thoughts for the night We're going to start with you brother Marvin. Your for
7: I just want to say brother Africa Please um, continue on Having Africa on the move Because Africa is still a, definitely on the move uh, you know, in regards to all of the to all of the uh, the tactics that the enemy is doing, Africa is definitely on the move. Africans here in the United States of America are definitely still on the move. Right here in Richmond, Virginia, all the way up, you know, on the East Coast to the West Coast, we are definitely still on the move. I would urge the listeners out there in 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 the, um, in the world to. To, to study, to read, um, not only, you know, uh, just just read and study, but be active in your own communities, organize, 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 like Brother Anthony, Brother, all the brothers on this, on this show say, organize, we need organization, man. Organization is key to what we're up against. It would never, like, reforms is not going to get it, voting is not going to get it, only organization is going to get it. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Brother Maurice, for your contribution to today's program. And we'd like to get the final thoughts from Brother Jibari. Brother Jibari, your final thoughts
6: for night. You know, um, there are song lyrics. I'm not going to attempt to sing them, but they say music is the key, the key to everything. And we as African people have always been in tune with music. And even when times were the worst, whether it was shadow enslavement, Reaganomics, et cetera, et cetera, we always had good music. The fact that the music is so scarce, they speaks of the state of society we're in. So we need to get to a place where we get in tune with what's spiritually always been a part of us and make sure we're promoting that good music that will help us have a better where we are. Cause nothing else, the music will unify us and not divide us when the music was good. So we got to understand, we got to get hard to those lessons and we got to really take the hard wide ancestors. put so much emphasis on nothing else having good music. And it wasn't like they had a lot of the technology and stuff we have now. They just had what God gave them and they used it to organize and strategize to help um, create better conditions for those that were going to come later. And that's what we have to do. We have to sow the seeds so that a brighter tomorrow will come as well as working on the present. Peace.
2: Thank you, Brother Shabari, for your Thoughts for this tonight And
5: uh, we will continue to struggle Next we will go to Brother Moses Brother Moses, you'll find the thoughts for tonight Yes, yes It's been a great show And I have definitely uh, enjoy I always enjoy Brother Maurice uh, It's been a penetrating analysis um, We we have a situation Where the objective conditions Are right um, The society And the, so, the political economy Is highly socialized Uh there's a lot of people working, uh, a lot of industries, and uh, and it's millions of people in 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 industries um, that have been organized and produce and are producing. So the objective condition is there, but it's a subjective factor: the consciousness, the political parties, the organizations of the working class. That's the problem, and we gotta we gotta bring consciousness to the movement, and that's that's the goal. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. And we i, mean, I we'll check you, brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for the night.
4: My final thought for the night is that um is that we're not uh you, you know, we're not yet free and we're not yet liberated. Uh and um that's not gonna come about until we get organized. And politically educate ourselves and each other as to the realities not only what's going on on our own turf, but around the world. And on that note, uh want to announce once again that the All African People's Revolutionary Party (G.C.) and the National Council of Arab Americans are organizing African Liberation Day and Not Bar Palestine Day 2020 in Washington, D.C. on May 23rd, 2020, at Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C. across the street from the White House. And for more information, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org.
2: Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. And we now will go to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey,
3: He'll find thoughts for the night. Sure. Uh, two things. African Awareness Association, we're going to Cuba. Trip takes place July 24th, July 31st. Uh, for more information, please call us 804-549-7492 or article 202-714-9435. Or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at com. And now, uh, for, for brevity's sake, I'll simply say, I encourage the community, you know, to continue to struggle. Um, the situation is, is getting critical every day, so we have to wake up. We have to become wise in terms of what's going on. And as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. And, Brother Africa, you have a good night.
2: And you the same, Brother Hockey. We'd like to thank all our panelists, our audience, and supporters for listening to Africa on the Move and continue to support this program. We encourage you to join us next week on the. Uh, Second part of two on a two-part series. Not free what is happening to us. Like always, I'd like to for you to go forward, novel and backward, novel. And one of the ways you can do that is come in, come home with us next weekend. There's a special event going on, at African weekend. We bringing Africa to you. We take place in Richmond, Virginia, at the African um, Marketplace, which is located on Azalea and richmond hiraka Turnpike from 6 to 9 p.m., that's this coming Saturday and Sunday. And there will be a special African show and dinner Would be from 5 to 9 p.m., that's on the ninth of February. Please, if you're in the town or have friends, come out and support the calls, Purchase your tickets, or if you'd like to be in, please call 319 Until next time, let's remember. Pan Africanism is the key, it will set all African free. Let's get organized and have free Mother Africa and our brothers and sisters. Until next time we thank you for listening to Africa on the move and we'll leave you with some music of inspiration.
9: respect our nation at its best eats the hungry our nation at its worst at its worst
10: our nation will have partnership for South Africa Free, 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 free. that's the law of the
1: green it's
8: a law of the green it's a lot of the green A F R I D A Andola the Windows Bim
1: Bob Way Sandania Daddy I I speak about
10: the motherland. I know this girl whose name is Lola. Lola. She lives in a country called Angola. Angola. Her president's name is Dos Bantos. And a man named Sabimby playing him
9: He has an eternal flame. His flame don't burn out. Some of y'all flames burn out. His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country, our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Touré. Brother Kwame Touré as he comes down. Let's give it up as he comes down the aisle Brother Kwame Ture, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother, brother Kwame Ture, who's been on the fire line, who shook up America in 1966. Would he holler, Black Power, Black Power, Black Power, Black Power?
1: Black power! Black Power, 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 what Power, is Power, what time is it? What time is it? What time is it? All right. Brother, come to Let's give it up. Brother, come to
11: Thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. And uh, there are three members of uh, three other members of our central committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? <laughs> Brother Ron Gibbs is here. yes. <laughs> Sister mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother, who has uh, come through many struggles, was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our Central Committee, the youngest member, David brothers
9: <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh.
11: Of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious ...is to make the unconscious, conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many... ...the African population in Los Angeles, California, revolted. Rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality... And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army, very costly. But since it was an instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. Those who participated were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellions, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aid, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland, nothing big, just a little planning. (laughs) Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. (laughs) Now we must say from the very beginning... The only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now, for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle. Unconscious, but involved in struggle. The consciousness understands understand precisely what their task is. And we've said this two years ago here. We repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behaviour. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behaviour. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious, look, you want freedom anyway, let's be serious, let's sit down, let's plan it, let's wait protracted war, and let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation, it's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved, He could not become president of the Baptist, National Baptist uh, Convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. (laughs) As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National uh, Baptist Convention. There was so much confusion there that a minister was actually pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization. demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy, very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She will get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust, the people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads for reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16 million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary, organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items. But it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. (laughs) And then, of course, you find brothers. Yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized
1: masses.
11: Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day when speaking to a sister who, uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, Kwame Ture, so you when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, Are you going to get that? I said, That's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter is going to get it. But I'm working for it. Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature, that people are so different, they have such different tastes, such different ta la that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has its belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. (laughs) Now what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided. And this is the truth. (laughs) This is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be, all of us, So many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black. Look at me. I'm brown-colored. Yes, I'm not black I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have a say just to run away from the truth. We told them then it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh in the 1970s we had our last press conference we said We're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it and we have not used the capitalist media press. (laughs) As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America tried to throw out African Americans. They did it. We saw the whole scene. It's our job, we followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans, of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an (laughs) African-Kenyan. And certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. You African-year, where you were born? Trinidad. You African-year, where were you born? Uganda. You African-year, where were you born? Egypt. You African-year, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interests a people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscience comes to understand that the Africans born in America Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, it's a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say, world news, here they come. World news, today President Clinton said, (coughs) world news, today Newt Greenridge said, World News, don't who's running for president, can <laughs> It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. So <laughs> no, nobody has played but them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American Catholicism.
1: <laughs>
11: our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people. And I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor. Because the poor, they are pure. I mean the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they're incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside the gate. And I sat down, there's a little cannel there and a concrete. I sat down by the cannel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana. I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the... Uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? He doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to university. People who couldn't vote died for to become mayors.
1: <laughs>
11: it is these pure poor that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. What's their movement? The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that, there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited, they wanted to show me the child as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew was a little girl I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door, I said, what's the name? She said, uh, "Ajola." I said, "Ajola." She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know, I just made it up, does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, a young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what you mean our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who is he? I said, he the one who gave you the colors. (laughs) The unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis on a day-to-day basis to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. (laughs) Quickly conscious. (laughs) And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with this thick team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington DC. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa and uh, much confusion mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. Moving to the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibilities to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NWACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a United Front. This United Front is a very simple thing, now. A very simple task. All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party has been doing much work on this. Because we are among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer. At the Washington DC Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a united front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time. This was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan, who was before Vernon Jordan, the one who died in Africa, Whitney Young. No, it was jo- I'm sorry, Whitney Young had died. Is correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course. Uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing PUSH. Dorothy Haidt, the uh, National Council of Negro Women. Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core. And we represented the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something and the enemy will knock it down. And you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them until they get serious. I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together. A lot of work. A lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> And we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. <laughs> we accepted defeat. We licked our wounds. We pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life. really has, really has. The most recent one was I have a brother who's in jail in uh, Florida for killing a white policeman. Uh, This brother has been isolated in jail. Nobody writes him, uh, so he has a lot of problems. And uh, his father and I knew each other from struggling days back in the 60s in Dayton, asked me to write him. I wrote him. So, you know, when brothers are in jail, they ain't got nothing to do, so he writes me a letter every day. And uh, I respond to all his letters because he's in jail, you know. And uh, last year, when uh, speaking on telephone, I told him, I think I have everything careful. I sp- I'm going to speak to uh, Bill Consular, and I'm sure Bill Consular will look at the case. In March of last year, I had lunch with Bill Kunstler and uh, in New York here, and Bill Kuntzler agreed to take the case. And he said, but you know, I'm just a little bit busy now. Give me about two or three months, and then send me a letter, and I'll pick up the case. So I waited two or three months, and when I wrote the letter, before the letter arrived, the uh, was dead. So death has robbed me of many uh, political victories in life and created more work for me. But I'm a revolutionary. I accept it because I know my death is going to create a lot of work for others.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
11: <laughs> so it's robbed me of a lot. The Honorable Elijah's, uh, Mohammed's death robbed me of a, robbed the All African Peace Revolutionary Party of a golden chance to uh, create the United Front. Of course, you know, when the Nation of Islam came up, there was first uh, Wallace Dean Muhammad, the son of the uh, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and then, you know, there was a little uh, discussion, and uh, finally uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan decided to uh, return with the original uh, theories and actions of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. When Minister Louis Farrakhan first came out, of course, now I'm blessed that you know, I've known Minister Louis Farrakhan for over 30 years and worked with him for over 30 years. Of course, we're not in the press all the time, but we're in contact all the time. And uh, Minister Lewis Farrakhan and I discussed much, step by step. Of course, the only thing I had in my mind was the African United Front. That's all I want. And uh, Minister Farrakhan said, okay, he sees it, he understands it, but he needs to get a little bit stronger. Fine. Uh, 1982, I our party made an assessment, and uh, we said, okay, the nation of Islam is strong enough now to do the work for the African United Front. We cannot do it, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, because uh, from the time they see us, we tell them we're revolutionary, we're socialist, we ain't bending, we anti-Zionist, you can do what you want, that's your problem. You yes, understand? So we don't bend, but the Honorable uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he's charming, and you know, he's sentimental minister, can quote Bibles, so he can sit down with preachers and all these others, etc. So after observing his movements, uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party mandated me to go and uh, visit uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and to give him the uh, files of the African United Front and tell him that it was his responsibility to call the Front. Of course, it was a task that I enjoyed undertaking. I hadn't seen him in some time, and I uh, I had a beautiful day. We spent the entire day at his house there in Chicago. You know, was, he just uh, separated uh, from uh, uh, Dean Wallace Mohammed and his forcibly coming back. And uh, I took for him some old copies of Mohammed Speaks. Now, if you look at the old copies of Mohammed Speaks, every middle page that you open had two black hands reaching across the oceans calling for a united front. Every, uh, every issue of Mohammed Speaks. We must know our history, and we will not, never be ungrateful to those who taught us. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed has taught me an awful lot, and I know he's taught our people an awful lot, and for that alone, I'll be forever grateful to him.
1: <laughs>
11: Minister Farrakhan agreed to take the program. He had no choice. I told him, this is your program. This is what your leader says you're supposed to do Him, My leader is your leader. And you say you're following his footsteps, you know, and he was getting ready to do it, he didn't do it, He here's your chance, you're supposed to do what he didn't do, you know. So, of course, Farrakhan had no choice, he had to accept it. We were well prepared, everything was in proper order to have finally, once again, our African united front. By 19, uh, when was uh, Jesse first talking about running for president? It was 1984. When did uh, Farrakhan make the alliance with him? November 83. So by 82, I left me. I went back to Africa. Everything was moving. I was in contact with uh, Minister Farrakhan. Our party people were in contact, feeding us step by step. I came back uh, in early 1983. I met with uh, Minister Farrakhan. I explained to him uh, precisely the steps that we thought we could help in bringing an African United Front together. After some time, he asked that we have a meeting late in the year, probably around September, October. I'm telling the truth exactly, what was said at the meeting. Zafar Khan said to me, he said, uh, at that time, uh, Jesse Jackson had declared he was going to run for presidency, and he was under a lot of threats, you know, and I certainly thought that some crazy whitey was going to pop him, you know. But I have no problem with it. My life is on the line all the time. I put my life on the line for one thing. You put your life on the line for another thing. I ain't got no problem with it. Right. You know So Minister Louis Farrakhan came to see me. He said, "You know, and he's very clever, Minister Farrakhan. He's very clever. When he's already wants to soften hip, he comes, he always plays that violin for you. "Oh, brother Kwame, you're my younger brother." but you know you are so profound in political analysis. You surpass us all, that even though I am your older brother, I must come and seek advice from you. <laughs> he's rough, you know, he's rough on that violin. <laughs> he sings some sweet songs on that violin. <laughs> so of course after seeking my advice, he came to seek my advice, he said, I want to make a decision. I said, what's that decision? He said, I want to put the FOI at uh, the disposition of Jesse Jackson to protect him. I said, well, if you want to do that, that's your decision. He said, well, you don't seem enthusiastic about it. I said, well, I'm not. (laughs) He said, well, uh, Jesse Jackson might get killed. I said, he probably will get killed. He said, don't you think we need to protect him? I said, that's your decision. It's your FOI. You know, he said, so now he saw that it was getting serious. He said, uh, you know, he's clever. He's clever. Cause he'll switch on you fast. You know, if, you're not, if you don't switch with him, you'd be in back gear while he's in front gear. You're already saying yes when you start, thought you were saying no. Yeah, he's rough. He said, well, uh, I bet if you were uh, being hounded and attacked by uh, people, you'd want the FOI to protect you. I reminded him very slowly and very carefully, Minister Farrakhan, when I was elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first public meeting I had as chair was a meeting with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in his house in Chicago, where I spent 15 hours. In fact, it was here that I met Muhammad Ali for the first time. This is way back. This is before, well, you old people, so before you were born. We're talking about 1966 here, easily. 30 years ago, yeah. At the end of the meeting, of course, you know I'm a young man. I'm, I'm 26 years old at this time. You know, 26. I've heard the honorable Elijah Muhammad all my life. What am I going to say to this man? This man used to raise me up. You understand? This man taught me things, gave me courage. I said, he's saying that on a radio? Is he crazy? Yeah, he's a white devil. That's what I said. There ain't none but white devils. That's what they, yeah. Yes. He'd tell the truth right out there. He wouldn't buy his tongue for nothing. You know, and uh, I reminded uh, Honorable Elijah, uh, the Minister of and I said, At the end of the day, the Honorable Elijah Mohammed looked at me. I was sitting directly across from his table. He said, Son, he said, the devil wants you. I said, Yes, sir. He said, Son, the devil is out to get you. I said, Yes, sir. He said, Son, you must be careful. I said, Yes, sir, I'll be very careful all my life. I've been working in a, a, a mine pit among the enemy, and I'm older now, I have more experience, so. He said, they're mean. You know, I said, yes, sir, I know they're mean. He said, they're going to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, so, son, I'm going to put the FBI at your, the FOI at your disposition. Everywhere you go, I'm going to send out an order that the FOI must protect you. Now, you know, this was really too much for me, you know. So I started, I said, well, sir, thank you, you know, but you know, the FOI is so busy. I'm so busy, I'm running here and there. This will be such a task for them, really. I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it, sir. And you know, I go through all this humble pie about thank you, but I don't need it. You know what he said? He said, son, I wasn't asking you. That's what he told me. And if you go and look at pictures in the past, you'll see everywhere I go, the FOI was there protecting me from the 60s. You will look and you will see that. So I reminded this to Minister Louis Farrakhan. I reminded him of it. And I said, Minister Farrakhan, the FOI will protect me, but I promise you they will never protect me because I want to be president of the United States of America. They might protect me because I want to rip up America, but never because I want to be president of America. (laughs) Well, he saw that uh, his clever trick didn't go so well. So he backed up again. He said, well, uh, what do you think about the Alliance? I said, it's a great mistake. He said, why? I said, because uh, Jesse Jackson is a Democrat first and foremost. The Democratic Party jumps to the tunes of the Zionists. While the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was a confrontational organization and confronted Zionism outright, the first place I read about the Palestinian struggle in this country was in the Mohammed Speaks newspaper.
1: <laughs>
11: the Honorable Elijah Mohammed taught me about Palestine when no left-wing paper in this country did. And they talk about nationalism is chauvinism. Look at that. I saw pictures of Malcolm X shaking the hands of PLO representatives when the PLO was first organized in 1964 in Mohammed Speaks, in Mohammed Speaks. (laughs) Therefore, I told him, I said, the Zionists, they hate us, but they know you the first. (laughs) So what I'm worried about is when they spoil the union and it splits, you understand? which side of the fence you gonna be on. Cause I know Jesse gonna be with the Zionists. Cause that's the Democratic Party. I'm just brutally honest with you. I'm telling you exactly what was said between us. We had a very frank discussion. After that discussion, I told him, what about the African United Front? He said, it's still good. Of course, me, myself, I knew do a thing with Jesse, it was problems. But in spite of obstacles, you must do your work. In spite of obstacles, you must persevere. I said, well, I want you to meet uh, Jesse ja- Jax- uh, John Jacobs of the Urban League. He said, I've never met him. I said, I'd like you to meet him. He said, you can arrange a meeting? Will he meet with me? I said, yeah, I can arrange a meeting. he meet with you. I arranged a meeting at Johnny Jacobs' uh, office here in New York, in Manhattan. The first time they met each other, I just sat in the background, talk, talk, talk. So well did our meeting go that Minister Louis Farrakhan and Johnny Jacobs signed a letter that day Issuing a call for a united front among the political organizations in this country. We have it in our files. When the time comes, we will demonstrate this. The Urban League has a copy, Farrakhan has a copy, and Major Thatcher, Thatcher, Hatcher, Hatcher, <laughs> yeah. Hatcher from Gary has a copy because at that time he was head of the mayors, and we were working with him, of course. Uh, of course, I went back to Africa. It didn't take me long before I heard all this nonsense about gutter religion, Judaism, gutter, or dirty religion, or whatever, whatever, and uh, Jesse having to uh, split from Farrakhan, and you know what happened.